Now, I think one of the things for us as Brits as we start to realize that we are dwarfed by many nations around the globe is that maybe some areas where we excelled in and were kind of global leaders in, we maybe are not so much now. But one area where I do think um, that we can boast in is we, I think we're the global masters of the understated put-down. So, for example, the phrase, that's pretty average. You know, technically, that phrase means that that is what you should expect, right? But if, I don't know, if I asked you how my talk was and afterwards you said, well, it was pretty average, then we all know in Britain that that is not a compliment. Uh, let me say that if I invited you around for dinner and I said, you know, afterwards, how was the dinner? And you said it was pretty ordinary. Again, you probably wouldn't get invited back. Because these, these phrases, average, ordinary, even though on one level they mean exactly what you should expect, just the ordinary, the reality in the way that we use them in Britain, you know, particularly in the understated put-down, is it means actually it's very, very below par. Now, part of the problem with that is if you're aware of the Church of England liturgical calendar, so how they mark out times and seasons, the vast majority or the most common time in the Church of England calendar is ordinary time. Now, just pause for a moment, because if the vernacular is that that means it's below par, does that mean that, you know, 34 out of 52 Sundays, so basically 60% of your Sunday experience and all of the other time in between is below par, and that's the Church of England experience for you? I mean, maybe that has been your experience for the Church of England so far, I don't know. We won't take a straw poll. But you see the problem, right? But what's interesting with ordinary time in the Church of England, the liturgical color for ordinary time is green, symbolizing growth symbolizing gospel renewal. In other words, beyond the banter, there's a profound point there, that actually the gospel grows in our lives. We grow and develop. We mature. We become more like Christ. We experience gospel renewal, not so much through the extraordinary, but through the ordinary, through just the general, average, normal warp and woof of life. Now, I think this sharpens a little bit more when you particularly consider the trends in the millennial generation and in Gen Z. So think about these two generations, which a large number of us here would probably you know, find ourselves within. They are both, as educations, better educated than any previous generation. They are more animated about making an impact in the world and dealing with global issues than any previous generation. Through social media, they have unprecedented, or maybe you have unprecedented opportunities to do something or make something or innovate something that goes viral and is extraordinary and um, exceptional. They're repeatedly told by marketeers, by films, by the culture at large, and by the brand that they are exceptional and can do anything they set their mind to, or you are exceptional, you can do anything you set your mind to. And, of course, part of the thing with the internet is there are endless exceptional experiences on offer. You know, you want to see the best bands, you, can, you don't have to go to a concert, right? You can just, you know, Google it, put it up on YouTube and watch it, or Spotify or anything. All these exceptional experiences are beamed to you through your browser screen, right? So you don't have to deal with the ordinary and the normal. Who wants to deal with that? Find the exceptional. Be the exceptional. Be extraordinary. Don't be ordinary. So we've got a big disjunct then, because if the Church of England, but if actually Scripture as a whole expects that most of our life is going to be lived in the ordinary. In fact, it's not just Scripture, is it? We know that most of life is lived in the ordinary. Most of life isn't extraordinary. I mean, that's just the very usage of the word. It literally means that. Therefore, does that mean that we spend our lives constantly feeling disappointed, constantly longing for more, searching for more, but knowing that that's not the normal, that's not the average, and 
hey, for a few you might be exceptional, but for the rest of you, tough luck, pretty average, pretty ordinary, don't invite me back. You see the problem? And what about Jesus? Is Jesus ordinary? Now, again, with all of the caveats that Mark brilliantly put in in the first talk, we need to be careful here, but, you know, there's very little that's ordinary about Jesus when you look at him in the pages of the New Testament and the Gospels. Take Mark's Gospel, for example, the breakneck speed Gospel, miracle after miracle with remarkable encounter, the words that Jesus speaks, the deeds that Jesus does. He confounds his critics. He surprises everyone, even his closest friends. There's nothing that's ordinary about him. But then, as Mark was arguing with regards to the body, if we're called to follow him, does that mean we need to constantly be searching for the miraculous, the extraordinary? Does Jesus have anything to really connect with me when I'm brushing my teeth, having a glass of orange juice, getting dressed in the morning, trying not to lose my temper with the kids, walking to work, churning out that boring bit of mundane work, sweeping the floors, does Jesus know what that's, what's that is really like? I mean, for him, it was all excitement, right? What about for me? You see the problem? Well, we're going to look at this under three titles. You can see them again in your um, booklet. We're going to think about Jesus' life in the ordinary. Then we're going to think about God at work in the ordinary, then growing in the ordinary. Let's think, first of all, about Jesus' life in the ordinary. Now, of course, on one level, it needs to be said up front, as I've um, intimated, there is nothing ordinary about the Lord Jesus Christ. God himself in human form. The second person of the Trinity, who, as with all of the Godhead, is to be worshipped and adored, can be prayed to, can be relied upon. He is the Messiah, long promised throughout Scripture, the only one. He has lived a life like no other. His words are the very words of life. He is the saviour of the world. He is the king of kings. He is the lord of lords. He's our divine bridegroom and the lover of our souls. There's nothing ordinary about him on one level. But on another level, as well as being all of these things and far, far more, he's also fully human. And so here's the thing. When we hold together the reality of Jesus being fully God and fully human, we need to always ensure that his divinity never overrides his humanity and his humanity never undermines his divinity. You see that? For those things, they have to both be true all the time. His divinity and his humanity are held together such that one never overrides or undermines the other. That's the key thing. And therefore, as we think about it, I think we perhaps get ourselves into difficulty because we often overplay the extraordinariness of Jesus, Jesus in his humanity because we do overemphasize his divinity at the expense of his humanity. And so we think of Jesus not at all as ordinary, nothing ordinary about him, and therefore he's disconnected from us. And so if he's the pattern that we should follow, if he's the one, the firstborn among many brothers, that we should be like, He's just too far. He's too distant. He's too remote. He's like some beautiful, glistening star up in the night sky that is glorious to be admired from a distance, but really connected with me down here in the mud and the ordinariness of life. But that's not actually the scriptural view of Jesus. It holds together the glory of the second person of the Trinity with the ordinariness of him living among us, God in human form. 
God become flesh. God become one of us. Not born into a palace, born into a stable. Why? Because it's ordinary. And he lived his life in the ordinary. Let me show you this from Luke chapter 2. Fascinating how Luke gives um, more details than any other of the gospel writers of Jesus' life before he kind of bursts onto the scene with his baptism and the three years of his ministry. Luke chapter 2, verses 39 to 40. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Then look just across the page, Luke 2, 51 to 52. Then he went down to Nazareth with them, and he was obedient to them, that is his parents, but his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, notice how that phrase of Jesus growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, or Jesus was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him, they're pretty much parallel statements. Notice how it's repeated twice, obviously because it's therefore important. It's interesting as well if you go back, it's also the same phrase that's used of John the Baptist. In other words, what is being described of here of Jesus isn't unique to him. This was something that also happened to John the Baptist. He also grew in wisdom. He also grew in stature like Jesus. In other words, it's ordinariness. Now, on one level, John the Baptist is an ordinary, but this is a normal human experience. The child grew and became strong, physically strong. The child grew and became strong, was filled with wisdom and stature. In the original, just to make it really obvious, of verse 52, it says Jesus grew in wisdom and strength and the grace of God. So he grew in all these three things. Now, just pause for a moment and think of that. Jesus, who is the perfect human, Jesus, who is God himself in human form, had to grow physically. I'm, I'm not sure that's controversial for us, but grow in wisdom? Really? Grow in grace? Just pause for a moment. Isn't that a surprise to you? That Jesus knew, he was never sinful. There was never a time when he sinned. That's foundational. But he still, in, an, in a sinless way, needed to grow in wisdom. In other words, he was wiser when he was older than when he was younger. He still, in a sinless way, had to grow in grace. In other words, he was, he was more full of grace. He was more aware of the dynamic of grace. It was more a reality lived out in his life when he was older than when he was younger because he had to grow in them. Because that's what happens as human beings. A child does not have all the wisdom. They're a child. Jesus was a child. And he had to grow in these things just as he had to grow physically. Let me ground this a little for you. In Jesus' ministry, it's clear he knows the Old Testament, at least large parts of it, from the witness of Scripture off by heart. He quotes it on the cross. He quotes it throughout his life. He quotes it in the temptations in the wilderness. He knows exactly where to go in the scroll when he's in the synagogue. He knows exactly, he seems to know the Old Testament completely off by heart. Do you think he just knew that because he was God? At five years old, do you think he knew the whole Old Testament off by heart? No. Because a child wouldn't know the whole lot. A child has to learn. Jesus had to learn. We see him, actually, in Luke's gospel, interacting with the elders um, in the temple. And they're astonished at him. But there's no implication there that he has divine knowledge. This is a problem we often get into. There was a heresy in the fourth century by a man called Apollinaris. And he argued that whilst in his bodily form Jesus was human, in his mind and soul he was fully divine and not human. 
And therefore, he had the divine attributes, omniscience, knowing everything, perfect wisdom at all times and all places. And it was rightly, at the end of the fourth century, declared a heresy, because Jesus' full humanity and his full hum um, divinity are held together in all facets of his personhood, mind, body, and soul. So that means, therefore, that when Jesus is operating on the pages of the New Testament, he's not accessing his omniscience, which whilst available to him as God, would override what it means to be a human being. Because guess this is the thing, to be a human being is to be a creature. Creatures don't know everything. So I wonder, have you ever thought of Jesus learning Scripture and getting it wrong? Now, never sinning, let me be very careful here, never sinning. When he made a mistake, as any child makes a mistake when they're learning things, he wouldn't have lost his temper. He would never have been frustrated. But learning doesn't happen as a human being this side of the fall unless we sometimes make mistakes. Do you think if, I mean, Mark's much better at maths than me, so let's say that Mark just took his university-level maths to Jesus, age 10, and gave him a sum to do that Jesus would just, what, get it right? Because he's God? No. Because that would be to override his humanity. If he hadn't learned how to do that, if he hadn't grown in that particular facet of being a human being at that point, of course he wouldn't have got it right. He would have needed to have been taught it. Do you think of him, and we don't know when Joseph, his father, died, but you think of him working in the carpentry shop with Joseph. Do you think that Joseph needed to teach him how to plane a bit of wood, how to make a chair, or do you think he just intuitively knew it because he's God? Well, if he just intuitively knew it, there's no growth, there's no learning. It contradicts the verses we've seen from Luke 2. So this is Jesus in his humanity, sinless, please hear me, sinless, to be worshipped and adored, yes, but never at the expense of his humanity and overriding it. We sing this at Christmas time, once in Royal David City, but maybe these words of the um, verse will have new poignance to you. For he is our childhood pattern, day by day, like us, he grew. He was little, weak, and helpless. Tears and smiles, like us, he knew. He had to grow. So kind of, what was he doing for 30 years? Well, maybe reflect on this. Maybe the reason that Jesus doesn't come onto the scene for 30 years is because for 30 years, he's been living life in the ordinary. He's been growing. In fact, this isn't contention. This is the clear witness of Scripture. He needed to grow. He needed to become wise as a fully formed man. He needed to grow in the grace of God so that when he comes on the scene after 30 years, he's ready for the trials of three years of intense scrutiny. We'll come to this later, but that was what was going on. He wasn't ready probably at age 18, just as no man is. He wasn't fully formed in the wisdom and the grace of God. That's what Luke 2 is saying, right? Luke 2:52. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He was growing that very human activity that happens in the ordinary. And really, that's one of the most extraordinary things about him. Let's think secondly about God at work in the ordinary. So Jesus' life in the ordinary, God at work in the ordinary. One of the problems I think we have is that we think that God primarily works in us and in the world through the extraordinary. So, for example, if you can go on the internet and you can access the world's greatest preachers, 
Isn't it difficult not to think, look, if only I was under that person's ministry. I mean, here I am in Spa St. James, and, you know, the preaching is okay, otherwise I would have left, but it's not quite world-class, right? So therefore, if only I was under that person's ministry, choose your favorite preacher. And maybe you do choose your favorite preacher. Maybe you listen to the Sunday sermon, and then you go and think, how did, uh, you know, Tim Keller or someone preach that? And think, oh, interesting. Not, you know, not quite as, you know, not, not, um, you know, our one wasn't quite as good as that. But if only I was under that extraordinary ministry, then I'd grow. Or maybe it's, you know, worship songs for you. And you think, our oh, band's great. Praise the Lord for them. They're good, but they're not quite world class. Like, and again, choose your favorite ministry. And so you go and listen to that. And isn't it tempting to think if just I had that experience in my life or I was under that ministry and the internet makes it available to you, then I would grow so much more? That's not God's will for your life. God wants you to grow in the ordinary time. And don't despise the ordinary. In fact, this is a problem with the generation. Rod Dreher has written a book called The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming, a book which is all about our weariness today of our pursuit of the extraordinary. We're not weary of the ordinary. No, we're weary because we're constantly chasing the dream, constantly pursuing the extraordinary. He wrote this. Everydayness is my problem. It's easy to think about what you would do in a wartime, or if a hurricane blew, or if you spent a month in Paris, or if your guy wins the election, or if you win the lottery, or bought that thing you really wanted, it's a lot more difficult to figure out how you're going to get through today without despair. Just today, getting up in the morning, feeling a bit groggy, brushing your teeth, putting your slippers on, same bowl, same cereal, same milk, day after day, Life in the ordinary. That's tough. But here's the thing. God works in the ordinary. And God works in the ordinary by working in the particular. Okay, Because the ordinariness is not general. Your ordinary is different to my ordinary. is different to her ordinary. God knows us all in the particularities of our ordinary. There's a lot in Scripture that reminds us that God, nothing in our lives is by accident. Everything is intended. Everything is intentional. Acts chapter 17, verses 26 to 27, when Paul is preaching in this extraordinary setting of Mars Hill to the Greek philosophers of the age, he says this, from one man God made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of the lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Now, do you notice the focus on the particulars marked out the appointed times in history. That means that the time you live in, the age you are, that's not an accident. That's intended for you specifically. That the place you inhabit, the boundaries of the land, God is in control of that, and he intended that for you. He doesn't see you as just some generalized mass of people. He sees you. He knows you. He's involved in your life the ordinariness and the particularities of your experience, the age you are yesterday and what that was like for you, where you're going to be tomorrow. He knows it all. He's planned it all. It's particular to you. Now, if that is ordinary, isn't that extraordinary? That the God of the universe would know you in the particularity of your existence? The psalmist says in Psalm 118, verse 24, memorize this. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I often say it as a call and response with my boys over breakfast. Why do I say that? This, my boys, is the day that the Lord has made. Not tomorrow, not a different day. This day, 
with all of its challenges and opportunities, with all of its difficulties and wonders, with all of its gifts, God has made this day, my boys, for you. It's a gift. So what do we do? We receive it as a gift. We say, we rejoice. There's nothing ordinary in some sense about that. It's all a gift. So rejoice and be glad in it. This day is a gift from God. He's made it. He's planned it. All of its particularities are there for you, from the stub toe to the sweetness of ice cream. He's in it all. He knows it all. He cares about it all. From rising in the morning to when your head hits the pillow, nothing is chance, nothing is accident. It's all here for you as a gift from God. That's ordinary. This is part of what we emphasize, isn't it, when we go through the real change course. God is in the change business, and so how does he change you? Through heat. What is heat? It's life. It's just life. It's the kids disobeying you. It's the traffic that annoys you. It's the Zoom setting which doesn't work. It's the internet cutting out. It's, it's the good and the bad. It's the celebrations of life events. It's the day-to-day. It's just life, and God works in that to change you. Walking to work, taking other parents, talking to other parents at the school drop-off, eating your lunch, getting stuck in traffic, dealing with a slow internet, laughing at a friend's joke. This is ordinary time of life, and it's green because it's about growth. In Lamentations 3, to 23, we are told, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions, notice the plural, never fail. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Notice God's faithfulness is shown by compassions to you, not singular, because he doesn't give it as a blanket, one big compassion for you. No, no, it's compassions, plural, because whatever you face, you need that particular amount of compassion for that. That difficult person at work, just enough compassion for you. The questions and anxieties about how we're going to emerge out of lockdown, compassion for you. Rejoicing in getting promoted at work but not making it an idol, He's got his compassion for you. He's got particular compassion tailored to your particular needs and opportunities every day. That's the ordinary life. Think of a bit like this. Um, When I first moved to the city, I'd just finished playing kind of semi-pro rugby, and so I was a little bit larger than I am now. I had a 17-and-a-half borderline 18-inch neck. For those of you who are guys, you'll know that that means that you have to wear this, like, massive shirt when you just buy an 18-inch neck shirt. It's normally for larger people than I am. I'm five foot 11, you know, so this shirt that I used to wear, the shirts I wear to work were like, you know, just had yards and yards of material I kind of had to tuck in. So the shirt kind of fitted me, but not particularly well. It fitted my neck. It was just a general shirt. And I didn't particularly enjoy wearing them. Then the tailor on my way to work, you know, started introducing a discount, 60% off, 50% off, because he wasn't doing too well. And I managed to get three tailored shirts. Oh, the joy, finally, of having a shirt that actually looked quite nice on me, tailored, made to measure. I think most of us think that the Christian life is like that 18-inch shirt. It covers everything. God's grace kind of covers everything. It's there, but it's a bit awkward, a bit too much in some places, doesn't quite fit that bit. No, no, no. God's compassions in your life is made to measure, tailored just for you. He's sovereign. He knows everything. It fits you. He gives you just sufficient grace and compassion for every challenge and every opportunity that comes up every day. He knows it. He plans it. He gives you what you need. It's tailored, which then leads us to growing in the ordinary. 
Jesus is life in the ordinary, God in the ordinary, so how do we grow in the ordinary? Well, if Jesus lived life in the ordinary and God is at work in our lives in the ordinary to grow us, then it raises the question, how do we grow? As Mark has already indicated, we tend to focus rightly and understandably on our understanding of the gospel as applying it to our hearts and then working it out into our lives to grow. And that's right and proper, but a further question we sometimes neglect is how do we grow? How do we grow in the Christian life? Is it just know some truths and hey, presto, you become more godly? If only it was that simple. Let me take you to Deuteronomy chapter 6, to the Shema, as it's famously known from the Hebrew word for listen or hear, Shema, listen, hear. So prick up your ears if you've dozed off a little bit. This is important. And in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 and following, God says this, Hear, O Israel, Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, that great statement of faith. Love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Now listen to this. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Do you notice how this extraordinary statement of the Lord your God is one and this lofty call of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Do you notice how it's lived out? In the ordinary. You're walking along the road. That's how you live it out. When you're walking, talking to your children, when you sit up, when you lie down. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. I mean, some Orthodox Jews take this literally, but I don't think it's intended literally. I think it's symbolic. You know, to tie them as symbols on your hands means whatever your hands do, work this out. Just as Mark was saying, the bodily function of loving the Lord your God with your hands. Bind them to your foreheads so that wherever you, you think, whatever you think about, wherever your head goes, the knowledge of God being one and the call to love him is there. Write them in the door frames of your house and on your gates. In other words, whether you're going out or whether you're coming in, whether you're inside or whether you're outside, Work it out. So you work out this remarkable call to love God in the very ordinariness of life. From rising to going to sleep, from coming home to going out, from talking to children to talking to yourself, it all needs to be centered on God. It's in the ordinary that we do this. One way of thinking about this is the so-called liturgies of life. Um, if you've read a book by Jamie Smith um, or Tish Harrison Warren, then they talk a lot about this. We tend to think of liturgy as an exclusively religious affair. So we do liturgy when we come to church, when we do the call and responses from screen. But the original word liturgy is liturgos or liturgia from the Greek means the work of the people. It's about public work. It's about life. It's not so much about life in the church. It's far more about life out there. Life. And here's the thing about liturgy is there's always rhythms and habits and liturgies in life, you know, the same way you brush your teeth every morning, the little routine you have before bed of, I don't know, a cup of lemon ginger tea or something, whatever it is you do. There's liturgies there, the bowl that you like to use for breakfast, your favorite shirt, the route you take to work when you go back to work. All of those things, they're, they're liturgies, they're rhythms, they're habits. And here's the thing, personal formation happens there, in those moments of life, not in the extraordinary moments, the exceptional, it happens in the normal, the ordinary of life. And I've got to be honest, I think this is an area where as evangelicals we've been historically very weak. 
we've developed a view of personal formation that focuses a lot on the head and on the heart, less so, but still, and that's good and right and proper. But we struggle to articulate how that plays out in the daily habits, in the daily rhythms, in the ordinariness of life, and that's a problem. Because it leaves people often exhorted from the front, great sermon, heard it, ready to go, don't know what to do next, and then feeling guilty about it. But you work out the glorious truths of the gospel in the rhythms of life. Have you thought that the way you brush your teeth could impact your godliness? Have you wondered about, is there a way to drink a glass of orange juice in a way that receives it as a gift from God and rejoices in the flavor, thinking God made this, or in a way where you just shrug your shoulders, move on, and God hasn't been present there at all? Do you notice God or even reflect on God's presence with you at particular points in the day? That chance conversation with someone where you were able just to say something that was life-giving, and you think, yeah, God was in that. Of course, he's with you all the time, but we don't often notice him, right? This is the ordinariness of life. This is where growth happens. This is why ordinary time is green. This is where gospel renewal happens. Let me think about something simple to ground it for you. Dinner time. It's really easy, isn't it? Business of life, um, whether you're with a family or whether you're living with flatmates, just to come to dinner, you prepare your food individually. You don't kind of say to other people in the house whether you're family or whether they're your flatmates, let's eat together. So you prepare it individually, you sit down, eat it, no reflection or community, no um, time to really chat with other people. You maybe watch a Netflix series or something like that, and that's okay. There's nothing like inherently wrong with that. Probably you don't pause to reflect for a moment before you eat your food and give thanks to God, which doesn't mean that you're not thankful. It just means you're maybe not so consciously thankful, and so another dinner passes, and that's how it is. And that then becomes your habit, becomes your routine. But because it becomes your habit and your routine, you're unconsciously ingraining in yourself individualism, lack of conversation and relationship, and potentially lack of gratitude to God. So it's not great. It's not awful, but it's not great. What about a different rhythm and habit? What about you have a time when you're in the household, whether flatmates or family, or at least you try to do this in a certain points of the week, you say, we're going to have dinner together. Maybe even prepare it a bit together and just have some time interacting with other human beings, a pushback on the individualism of our society. Then you sit down and you do that unusual but oh-so-Christian thing of breaking bread together. You're having a meal together. And over the meal, you look away from yourself for a moment. You don't just think about yourself or what you're going to experience now from a TV series, but you, you ask the other person, how are you? How was your day? You bear with one another in that really simple, so normal way. You bear each other's burdens, you weep with those who weep, you mourn with those who mourn, you're just doing life. And you pause before you eat, and someone says thanks to God. And whilst you were thankful before, you're more thankful now, because you're actually conscious at this moment that you're receiving this food as a gift, and that maybe other people around the world aren't quite so fortunate. And if that becomes a habit, notice what's being ingrained in you. Community instead of individualism. Relationship and looking out for the other instead of just thinking about yourself. Gratitude instead of just assumption and consumption. Don't you think that that's forming you? In fact, don't you think that's forming you profoundly? You don't need to make a big thing of it. It's just life. It's just ordinary. 
but reflect on it, reflect on the practices. And it's not just meal times, it's what you do when you wake up. Do you check your phone first thing when you wake up and you suddenly feel that rush of adrenaline and surge of, you know, oh no, I've got lots of emails and all the WhatsApps are coming. Or do you just pause for a moment to think, before I check those things, before I look at social media and feel bad about not having enough followers or feel the pressure of having to conform to look like the images that are pushed through there, I'm gonna pause and I'm gonna listen to the Lord, and I'm going to read something from Scripture. We have a rule in our household, no Bible, no breakfast. I tell you, with boys, that works really, really well. It's just pausing. Let God be the first thing you think about. Or when you go to bed at night, you know this. You check Facebook last thing at night, you rarely sleep well. Because either you get into the kind of the pull-in of the cord pulling you into Facebook or Instagram or whatever your social media of choice, or you read something that makes you anxious or you feel you've got to interact with it and suddenly half an hour when you could have been sleeping is gone and so you're a bit more groggy in the morning. So why, why not just leave the phone downstairs? Plug it in, get an alarm clock, leave it there. I wrote a book about it if you want to find out more called Virtually Human about how to deal with technology. But you could just introduce a new liturgy of life. Wind down. Say evening prayer or Compline. You can get an app for that. Or just pray, kneeling by the side of your bed. Slow your mind down. Three things to say thanks to God for. Anything to say sorry to God for. Leave the day with him. Ask him to keep you safe at night. Which do you think you're going to sleep better on? Make it ordinary, because it is ordinary, but here's the thing, it's no less profound. You know, we often like to think, as I close, that a moment will come in our lives, a moment that will define us. Now they'll see the metal of the man or the woman. This will be my defining moment. And we keep telling ourselves, at that moment, I'll compensate for all of the inadequacies, for all of the ways I've compromised in tiny little ways along the way. That'll be the moment that'll define me. I'm just still waiting for it, right? I'm 42. It'll come soon. But here's the reality. That moment's already been set in stone. It's been formed in the thousands of little decisions you've made through your life. That's why with the Lord Jesus Christ... When he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, why was it that he prayed but the disciples fell asleep? Yeah, of course, it's because he's fully God. But as we've seen, he'd had to grow. It's because he had already formed himself the habit of dependence on God when it got stressful. For 30 years, he'd been doing that, day in, day out, trusting the Father. As the Son of God looks to the Father and does nothing of his own accord, but always calls out to the Father and says, Father, what do you want? And because he'd been doing that throughout his life, when the moment of pressure came, he didn't break. Because it had been formed in him in the ordinariness of life. Why didn't Jesus shrink back from the cross when everyone else was saying to him, don't go that way? When Peter rebuked him in Mark chapter 8, why didn't he take an easy route? Because for all of the days of his life, He'd been trusting his father. He'd been saying, Father, I will do what's right. I won't do what's easy. And he'd been walking that out in the small particularities of life. So it meant that when the big moment came, he turned his face like a flint and went straight for the cross. When he was dying on the cross and people were hurling insults at him and mocking him, how could it be that he responded with grace and saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, rather than reviling them back? Because for three decades beforehand, he'd had the way of peace and mercy and compassion ingrained in his life as a human being who'd grown in wisdom and grace and had walked it out, such that he'd always responded that way. There'd been difficult moments before, 
He'd been merciful and gracious before. The habit was formed. The character was there. The trust in the Father was there. And that ultimately means that when he died for you, it was the culmination of a glorious life. We saw a snapshot, of, we see a snapshot of it in the New Testament, just those three years. But he'd been living life in the ordinary for 30 before that. So, first of all, that means that when he died on the cross, he wasn't just dying for the big sins of your life. My friends, he was dying for all of the little ordinary, if I can put it like that, sins that you commit every day. Secondly, It means that Jesus' spirit, the spirit that sustained him in the ordinariness of life, is the same spirit that you have. The example that he set before you as a person who is fully human and fully God is an example you can follow because he's lived life in the ordinary just like you. He knows the pressures of it just like you. He knows the joys of it just like you because he's fully human. And really, that is the most extraordinary thing, isn't it? God in the ordinary, growth in the ordinary, life in the ordinary. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we want to hold a right view of what it means for Jesus to be fully God. We exalt him, we praise him, we worship him in every aspect. He is fully God. But also, he is fully human, and so therefore, he is like us, the firstborn among many brothers. He knows us. He has experienced life like us. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, whether bodily weaknesses, as Mark helped us in the first talk, or just life in the ordinary, as I've tried to do. So, Lord, help us to think this through so that Jesus might be exalted, and so that our lives might be those of green, of growth and change in the ordinariness. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.